And I would say, Abby, that was my girlfriend, there's a jackal in the room. And she got so used to it, she could talk me down while remaining asleep. She said, there's no jackal in the room, go to bed. And I would say, are you sure? You might recognize this voice from various shows that air on OPB. It's the comedian Mike Birbiglia. This is from a story from the Fear of Sleep episode on This American Life. It's about Birbiglia's increasingly dramatic sleepwalking problem. And she would say, yes, Michael, go to bed. There's no jackal. And I would say, okay. And I would go to bed knowing that there was a jackal. <laughs> And that's trust. <laughs> Birbiglia came to Portland recently for a show at the Aladdin Theater and was gracious enough to sit down for an interview while he ate lunch. He actually ate an entire hamburger between questions. I asked about his transition from straight comedy to storytelling in one-man shows. The point I reached with comedy was that I would see comedians who were, who were telling jokes. They would be very funny, but then at the end of it I would go, well, that's it? Like, that's the whole show? And I was like, well, oh, thank you so much. And I was like, I gotta do, I'd like to try to do something where it's just as funny, but that it builds towards something. Hearing you talk about this, I interviewed Mike Daisy recently. I know Mike, yeah. So um, he has a plan to do a 24-hour performance. It would be 24 50-minute monologues. You know, too worried. Yeah, well, I, I mean, get nervous when I think about Mike doing that. It yeah, seems very for, unhealthy. It seems unhealthy for him and for the audience. I mean, the whole thing is slightly insane, and and he acknowledges that. And he says that insanity will be a part of it, of uh, you know somehow the, the content of what he's going to talk about. But he said, and he was really open about this, that one thing that's driving him is that he is basically I don't think he used the word mastered, but he's very good now at what he set out to do. He basically said he was bored of that standard thing, and he wanted to do something different and it seems like that boredom is like a really fruitful thing to feel if you're a performer that it drives you to, to change yeah I mean I don't know if I'd resort to circus tricks like it sounds like Mike is doing I mean I, I think I like Mike a lot I've seen a lot of his shows that one just seems silly I mean why would you put yourself through that why would anyone put themselves through that the way he described it, and I, I was taken by this, this idea, this metaphor, is that he wants to just see if he can pick up something enormous and lift it up over his head and show it to people. It's interesting that that was his analogy, because that's what I, when I was writing the book, that was how I always described it to people. When they would say, how are you? I would say, I feel like I'm pushing this boulder up a mountain, because a book is so big. I mean, a book, in a sense, it's similar to what you're describing with Mike Daisy. He should just write a book. That way it doesn't torture people who want to, who have to stay awake for 24 hours straight. And <laughs> they can read it at their leisure. Yeah, exactly. But, no, I mean, writing a book really does have that bolder sensation, which is I experienced so many anxiety attacks writing the book, which is ironic, of course, because the book, I, I spend a lot of time talking about anxiety attacks and anxiety and how to avoid it. And then I wrote a book which brought on more of it. What was the gist of of the anxiety. You know when you're a kid and you're in school and they have the yellow paper and the white paper, the lined paper? The yellow paper's for rough drafts and the white paper's for very serious final draft writing. And I always like to think of everything I do as yellow paper, everything. Always in process, always working on drafts. 
I did the show last night in Seattle. The show tonight will be different. It might only be different by eight or ten lines, slightly tweaking things, but it will be different. And with a book, you can't change it again. It's funny because my copy of the book, you have the hardcover copy here, and mine actually has notes all the way through and cross-outs and line-throughs and additions of lines. Like, I can't let it go. Wait. They're not going to make the changes that I'm writing in to my book, but I can't stop changing it. That, that's amazing. Wait, so you're... you're I'm editing they, a book. That, and they're, that, that, who are they, they for? Never, they're just for myself. Are you, are you <laughs> crazy? No. Yes. It's, <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm wondering, I mean, would you want people to see these changes? Or, I mean, those changes aren't enough anyway, right? Because I can imagine that you'd make all those changes and you'd have the next version and you might want to do the whole thing over again. Yeah, I mean, the changes aren't vast. They're just subtle things here and here and here. But I, I suppose it's just part of a learning process. You learn by editing what you're doing. How do those changes come about? I mean, are you conscious of what killed last night and what somehow didn't work? And then and you've sort of you've made notes somewhere? or just I, I record every show. Often I listen to it. But often I don't. I, I'm pretty much making a mental note of an audience reaction every time I'm on stage. Can you give us an example of, of how that might work? So, like, I have this story about my first kiss and, like, the, the pain and awkwardness of my first kiss at this, this dance. Was, like, I went to an all-boys Catholic school for one year in high school, and I was with my friend Sam Ricciardi, who was, like, a makeout ninja, and I had not had my first kiss, and Sam and I are introduced to these two girls and he said um, one of these phrases that people often say but is very uncomfortable to admit he goes you get that one which I'm comfortable saying because I know I've been on the negative end of that conversation where a girl says of me you get that one and then the other girl girl goes ooh Um, or even like you owe me which really hurts like thinking about someone incurring debt based on my appearance, you know, I'd hate to hurt someone's credit score. That's a line from that that story, or that's a digression from that story that hasn't been in the show, the whole tour. And and it was in the original writing of it. I actually did it as a piece on This American Life. And then last night, I was on stage, and it just occurred to me, I just kind of remembered it. I was like, yeah, I should say that. Has, That's so you, really important for the story. And you're in the middle of the performance. Yeah, yeah, in the middle so of it. So some part of you is actually aware enough of what's happening that you can... I can edit the, on the fly. I can yeah. edit as I go in real time. Do you know what it was about the credit score digression? You yeah, yeah, you get that one digression that made it pop into your head last night and, and made you think, you know, I'm going to put this back into the joke. I just felt like I'd been telling it the whole tour without it. I felt like it needed something in that vicinity to fully paint the picture and put the audience in my shoes. Whether it's through your words or your body language or your actions on stage, you want to put people in your shoes and have them feel what you feel. And for whatever reason, I felt from the audience that they weren't quite in my shoes. Do you think it worked? Did the audience, were they more with you? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. How can you tell that? How do you know they're with you? Laughter helps, you know, laughter's a pretty obvious one. Um, with my new one-man show, there's like gasps sometimes, you know, like, that's a big one. <laughs> These are really obvious ones. The other one is like, 
I learned from doing my show eight for eight months off Broadway how to pick up on nonverbal cues. There's a sense you can see and feel in a room when people are locking in, and that's sort of where something special can happen is in those pauses and, and moments. That seems like a real lesson to learn if you've come from the comedy circuit where laughs are more the currency. Like if somehow silence is really significant, that actually sounds sort of scary. It is scary because you have to trust yourself that you're getting the right signals. And if you think about how often we all kind of don't trust ourselves, <laughs> trusting yourself is scary. There's this famous actor, I'm forgetting his name, and he was saying that what defines a comedy, it's not laughter, but the suspension of laughter. And that what you really want is not for people to laugh, but to be holding in their laughter so that they can hear the next thing. And at the end of the film or the play, that there's almost a smile that comes over the audience of satisfaction. I don't know if that's what I'm going for, but uh, that sounds pretty close. Thanks so much for sitting down here. Thank you. This is, I wouldn't have had it any other way. <laughs>